0: Welcome to Israel from the inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to DanielGordis.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. I have the pleasure today of speaking to someone that I've known for a long time and whose work I have long imagined. Uh, He has a new book out and a relatively new position, so we'll start with that. David Bernstein is the founder and CEO of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values, which he will tell us about in just a couple of minutes. He has long been a very passionate advocate of the free expression of ideas. He's past president and CEO of the Jewish Council for Public Affairs, and the former executive director of the David Project, which is actually where I first got to know him. Uh, And he is the author of a brand new book just coming out called Woke Anti-Semitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. As we're going to hear from David in just a second, uh, he not only thinks that it can harm Jews, he thinks that a woke progressive ideology in the United States is actually something that could harm Israel. It's a strategic national security issue for Israel as well. And that's the part that we want to focus on. But before we get to that, first of all, David, thanks so much for joining us. Give us a tiny bit more background about yourself and then tell us a bit about both JILV and about the book.
1: Thank you. It's really an honor to be on. Just as you you followed me maybe a little, I've been following you my entire adult life. And you've really influenced my thinking over the years and your books have as well. Um, So I've been a lifer in the Jewish world. Um, I started out you know as in political campaigns in the early 1990s. I spent some time at APAC. I spent some time at the Jewish Community Relations Council of Greater Washington, and then 13 years at the American Jewish Committee. So I've been around a while and it was really almost tw- 20 some years ago when I first started to warn my friends and colleagues that there was an ideology that sounded very different from what I might have considered politically liberal, growing up and we can talk about what we mean by liberal but what i had started to hear in various spaces uh were, were sort of a indictment of the system in the united states now most american jews who loved america grew up in america would have readily admitted that the united states was a far from perfect country but it was a country that was constantly striving to live up to its own high ideals that's not what this ideology Saw in America. It viewed America as pervasively oppressive to minorities and a country that was sort of born in sin. And I started hearing it first um, at diversity and multicultural workshops that I attended as someone who did intergroup relations for the Jewish community. I remember a speaker saying that racism equals prejudice plus power. And I thought to myself, that's interesting. I always thought that racism was just bigotry against racial groups. And when I started to think about that, it struck me immediately that that, that formulation that racism equals prejudice plus power could be used to suggest that perceived powerful groups like Jews could not be victims and perceived weak groups could not be victimizers. And that that could be weaponized against Jews. And I wrote about it in 2003, nearly 20 years ago in the Washington Jewish Week saying that there's a danger I also started to hear in various civil rights circles, comments that America was systemically racist. And I warned my colleagues at the American Jewish Committee that this could be a problem and that you could have a whole generation of immigrants coming to this country, thinking that America was a racist place and that would not be good for America's future. And we even held an acculturation convening about it in 2002, I believe, and um, it struck me that you could never do that today, that that very idea of holding, a convening around acculturation on such issues would be a a non-starter in today's ideological environment.
0: So- i just want to interrupt you for one second and point out, by the way, you're you're pointing to this that you said 20 years ago, but I think that's that's exactly right. That's about when it happened, but it actually, I mean, just for our listeners, it goes way back. Um, There there are things that were happening in the 1980s. I'll just give you two examples. One of them was that Howard Zinn Uh, the well-known American historian, wrote a book called The People's History of the United States. So That book is, um, what, 42-ish years old? Um, And that book was a huge indictment of the United States uh, as basically a country born in sin. I mean, to the point that you're pointing to in 2000, 2003, he was already basically saying in in 1980. The other thing that I remember when I was in college in 1980 was that the Saudis were actually starting to endow chairs in political science and in other fields at my campus. And I thought to myself as a young kid, who was kind of obviously stupid. I thought, well, if they want to waste their money and, you know, and endow chairs on, on American campuses, they don't go for it, you have an unlimited amount of money. And I don't know why you would possibly do that, but go ahead and do it. And of course they were very smart and I was very wrong. They were seeding a certain worldview on American campuses, and it wasn't only the Saudis, it was a whole array of different figures. So we're talking about a, 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 a project here that you've been talking about for the last 20 years, but it's really been going on for the last 40 years or more. So this one More, of this one.
1: actually. In the late yeah. 1960s, the term, the long march through institutions was coined by some followers of Herbert Marcuse, who was a, uh, a philosopher, um, and they, they endowed programs at ethnic studies at various universities, starting in California. And that formulation turned out to be completely prescient, and that's exactly what they did. They, they undertook a long march through institutions. And that gets us to where we, were, we are today, facing institutional capture of this ideology in many segments of American life. So I founded the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values in the summer of 2021. Uh, This was after the May 2021 round of hostilities between Israel and Hamas and Gaza, when it was very plain to anybody who had been observing past conflicts between Israel and Gaza and Hamas, that this conflict was being perceived and portrayed very differently than past conflicts. You could really feel it in the air. It was all over social media. You could hear it in the mainstream media outlets. Israel was indicted from the very beginning for prosecuting an illegitimate war. In previous rounds of conflict, that was not the case. Um, So we immediately saw the connection between this ideology which had set in in the previous few years and the portrayal of Israel in the media. Um, we also, um, we, we wrote a letter, we called it the Jewish Harper's Letter, which was named after a letter in Harper's Magazine by a group of public intellectuals and writers and journalists who were concerned that the racial reckoning had also unleashed a very censorious rampage in American life that was silencing people with different opinions. And we saw that happening in the Jewish community. And we pointed it out in a letter that was signed by about 50 public, Jewish public intellectuals and then a thousand others later on. And we we formed an organization out of that, and it's been an amazing opportunity to try to get the, to reset the discourse in the Jewish community, but also to point out that there's a problem in how this ideology that many Jewish groups have embraced, in in some ways, in promulgating anti-Semitic tropes and anti-Israelism.
0: OK, so this ideology that you're talking about, obviously, is woke. And what you're trying to do in, the, in your work is, first of all, distinguish between left-wing, i.e. woke or whatever, very left-wing woke, and, and liberal values. Just give us a couple sentences on what you mean by liberal values. Since you're for liberal values but you're opposed to woke, what are the liberal values that you and your colleagues are for?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of confusion around the word liberal. So there's politically liberal in the United States, which is associated with supporting abortion rights and separation of church and state and immigrant rights and the like. And then there's the word liberal in its classical sense, which means the free expression of ideas and liberties associated with liberalism in America and with liberalism in the West, the enlightenment values that make us democratic and able to have conversations that are critical of each other, of the trends of the day and the like. So I'm both, I have been both a political liberal and a classical liberal. But what happened over time was that these two forms of liberalism became disjoined. So many political liberals stopped being classical liberals and they started to buy into what writer Wesley Yang calls the successor ideology, or what I call in the book, woke ideology. And that ideology holds two things. One that oppression and bias are not just a matter of personal attitude, but they are embedded in the very systems and structures of society. And two that only people who have experienced that oppression have the qualifications and the insight to articulate it and define it for the rest of society. Now, both of those things can be true. Oppression can be embedded in societies. I mean, I, I think it would be hard to argue that there wasn't oppression embedded in American society during Jim Crow. Um, and people who have experienced racism or anti-Semitism or whatever might have insights that other people who haven't experienced it have, and we should listen to them. But that second pillar of this ideology that I talked about that sometimes is referred to as standpoint epistemology I don't want to get too technical here um, that is used to silence people. It's to say you don't have the standing to make that point. you have to defer to others who have lived experience to make that point about racism.
0: That becomes the whole uh, cultural appropriation idea right that even people people who can't even write a novel, about somebody in whose situation they weren't. So there was the novel American Dirt, which was, uh, I thought, a great read, uh, which was about um, asylum seekers coming from the South of the United States. And it was written by a woman who's herself not Hispanic, um, or at least of questionable Hispanic uh, you know, genealogy. And it created an outcry and at the end, if I'm not mistaken, the publishers actually had to pull back on the book a little bit and so forth. So this idea that if you're not black, you can't, you can't write about blacks. If you're not Hispanic, you can't write about Hispanics. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et which is, of course, obviously the opposite of what literature has always been about. Literature has always been about putting yourself in the shoes of somebody else and writing a story based on their world. So there's that, and it's also cancel culture that that it imports So you're talking about a, a whole, as we say in Hebrew, michlo, a kind of an aggregate of an aggregate of issues here. And what you're trying to do is restore classical liberal values of the worth of the individual, the right of free speech, the system. I also want to point out. I think. Tell me if I'm wrong. I think that one thing that the radical left and the radical right in America share is that they actually both think that there's something very wrong with the system.
1: Yeah, both uh, the radical left have started to undermine the idea of liberalism and no longer support it. And we'll even claim, and I've heard this from very prominent voices in the Jewish community, that when you talk about liberalism, what you are doing is you are upholding these systems of oppression because you are not really facing down the oppressive system. Um, and, I, and now you're hearing from the right, a new form of sort of right wing liberalism, that liberal values and liberalism has allowed this sort of cultural rot to set in in America and that, um, and that it is now, um, it is now uh, needs to be stopped and we need to sort of enforce cultural norms through the state and the like. So you see liberalism really on the ropes on both sides of the political spectrum. And one of the arguments I try to make is that we need to sort of form a new alliance of liberal voices in the sort of center left to center right who stand up for these liberal values. Jews have always done better in societies with liberal values, with free expression of ideas. That's how we thrive. And I think it, um, it, people don't realize that as soon as liberalism is on the ropes, we're going to be on the ropes as well.
0: So David, one of the things that struck me is that when you pointed to the fact that the JILV was a product, to a certain extent, of the tragedy of what happened in May 2021, a tragedy because of the war, a tragedy because of the riots that broke out inside Israel, and some people said that actually pogroms, ironically, had come to the Jewish state, which is the ultimate painful irony, Uh, and the tragedy of how Israel was portrayed in the international world among Jews and non-Jews, that's what led you to the creation of JILV, and it just struck me as interesting um, that that's also, those were also the events in the days that led to the launching of this podcast, blog, Substack, uh, because it struck me that as soon as you have a conflict, a conversation about Israel, that's only based on the conflict, then you're playing defense the whole time. You can never talk about the grandeur of Israeli society. You can never talk about the reju- rebirth of Jewish culture in music, poetry, literature, etc. cetera. You can't talk about great Zionist thinking that's being done. And all you talk about is the, is the stuff that nobody wants to hear about because it's depressing and it's grinding and it's grueling and so on and so forth. So it's just kind of interesting that the same events in the world led to the beginning of your work with the JILV and our work here uh, with Israel from the inside. But you said something to me not long ago that really struck me, and I wanted to ask you to reflect on that now. You made the point that the obviously your book focuses mostly on America. And again, I just want to remind everybody that this book is Woke Anti-Semitism, How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. Um, It harms Jews, and most of the book focuses on how it harms Jews in America. And that's a hugely important conversation, but you said something about Israel, that struck me. And what you said was that you thought that woke ideology in America could become a national security issue or national security threat for Israel. And that's counterintuitive and fascinating. And I'd love to hear you explain why and how that
1: is. Yeah, so I think it can harm Israel in two ways. One in the immediate term and one in the long term. In the immediate term, this ideology creates new opportunities for Muslim Brotherhood groups funded by Qatar to come into the United States and to lobby on American foreign policy issues, lobby against the Abraham Accords. This is what the Reut Institute calls the Red-Green Alliance. It's been operating in Europe for many years now, and it has found its way to the shores of the United States, and it is well-funded, and it is trying to change the conversation in the United States on foreign policy issues, particularly in U.S. relations with some of the Gulf countries and with Israel's ties to those countries as well. So you see how these groups can find their way into liberal discourse, and they mimic progressive discourse, woke discourse, and they mimic the discourse so that they can find resonance among progressives in the United States. That's happening in the here and now. There was a conference last week that Rayut Institute sponsored that we were involved with, where we brought together an alternative Muslim Jewish coalition to try to face down that green alliance. So you can see that's really weighing on us now. The second way it can is it can lead to the corbonization of the Democratic Party in the United States. And by that, I mean, we can see the Democratic Party in the long term become like the Labor Party in the UK under Jeremy Corbyn. If these forces continue to gain ground, not just on the far left, but in the mainstream left, and they're able to move the discourse in that way, it's going to bring forth a very different Democratic Party than we have today. Now, that, there's already been some damage, and I know that there are people on the right who will say, well, look, it's already uh, the Democratic Party of the Squad. That's not really true. The Squad are just a few members of the Democratic Party. They have influence. They have influence in the White House and the like, but they're not the dominant force in the Democratic Party, and it may be a long time before they become one. But I don't think it's it is out of the question that over time, if they can move the discourse in the direction of this much more ideologically charged, message that we see today, that we may see a very, very different Democratic Party in the future. Right. If you have
0: a different kind of Democratic Party, let's just say that you have Biden, who's kind of an old-style Democrat, instinctively supportive of Israel. You can agree or disagree about this policy or that. But fundamentally, an old-style Democrat, basically, in his kishkas, feels good about Israel. And then you have, let's say, at the opposite extreme, you have the squad. Somewhere in the middle there, and not that far out to the left of Biden, is a president lying in wait to become president, who might instruct the United States not to veto a resolution at the United Nations. In other words, and an anti-Israel resolution comes up in the UN, Israel has most of the time been able to rely on the U.S. to strike that veto. I don't think you have to move the needle too far to the left in the Democratic Party to get to a place where those vetoes might come, but also might not come depending on the circumstances, depending on the relationship with the prime minister that Israel has in office, depending on the specific issue. Um, and that obviously itself, by the way, could be a hugely dangerous thing. One could see, for example, an interna- a growing international sentiment designed to ostracize Israel. And you could foresee the next time there's a May 2021, um, you could see a world in which European air carriers said we're not flying to Israel. And they also say that Israeli lines like El Al cannot fly to us. And you could imagine in a different kind of a precedent, the United States copying that even for a week or two, reminding Israelis that they are fundamentally completely surrounded. There is no way to get out. You obviously can't go by land. It's very hard to go by sea. And if you can't go by air, um, you have a a country where, where 10 million citizens feel fundamentally isolated and boxed in to say nothing by the way of the fact that Israel's food reserves are not nearly as deep as people imagine. Israel does not have food for months and months. It has food for much less time in storage. So a blockade of an international sort or just a refusal to do shipping could have an enormously negative impact on Israel. And all it would take sometimes is a non-veto in the UN or an American president with a somewhat different disposition doesn't have to be the squad.
1: Right. You know, I don't think many realize that the one bulwark that Israel has against the scourge of hostility in the international arena is really the U.S. Congress. It's the only place where the American Jewish establishment has any power at all. We don't have any power in the State Department or really even in the White House. Um, There might be some derivative power in some of those institutions, certainly not at the United Nations. And so we rely on the 435 or 535 votes in the U.S. Congress to serve as that bulwark against that scourge of hostility. And if that starts to loosen too much, and as you said, it doesn't take that much for it to fundamentally change the dynamic, Israel may not have that type of support in the future. So that's why woke ideology in particular is a threat. We just conducted a national poll that has not yet gone public, but will be public soon. And we look at how support for Israel is shifting And, you know, I've been watching these polls for a very long time. Um, It has shifted for the right, to the right in the past 20 years. So what used to be sympathy toward Israel and the Democratic Party has steadily moved to the right. It is now decidedly so. There's much less sympathy sympathy among Democrats for Israel than there is um, Palestinians. Um, The other thing is that the total amount of sympathy is shrinking. So that's a problem, and and it may may not sustain the kind of outcomes that we're accustomed to in this country in support for Israel. So we've got to take this ideology very seriously because it's probably the driving force for that shift.
0: When you say that the total amount of support in, uh, in the United States, in other words, Democrats and Republicans put together is shrinking, that's a little bit countercultural to say that, right? Isn't the prevailing word on the street that support for Israel is very solid, that, yeah, there's the woke, you know, fringe, but fundamentally in the mainstream, it's okay?
1: I wish I could say that, but that's not what the polls show. You could look at the... No, 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 but the- I'm saying
0: that. I know what the polls show, but isn't what I just said what the, the, the common claim of leading yes. Jewish establishment speakers is?
1: Yes, and so I'm just trying to be honest to what I see in the numbers, and I've talked to a pollster that's been doing polling on these issues for a long time, and you're seeing a shrinkage um, in total support. That's probably a function of diminishing support on the left. So yes, support is moving to the right, but also the overall support is less because there are fewer people on the left that support Israel than they used to.
0: So when you say support is moving to the right, what you mean if you're gonna find the locus of support for Israel, you're gonna find it basically in the Republican party, and not as much in the Democratic Party as you used to, right? When I grew yeah. up, you know, the Democratic Party was solidly behind Israel and all my parents' friends and all my parents' friends' friends were all Democrats and we're solidly behind Israel. And what you're saying is that's what shifted. And if you want to find that, that grain of the base of support for Israel, you're gonna to have to look at the right. That's what you're saying when the supporters move to the right?
1: The, the, incre- the increase in support among the right does not make up for the losses on the left. I was at the David Project teaching young students, college students, high school students, how to advocate for Israel from 2010 to 2015. And when I took my initial tour of campuses, I asked a lot of questions to Hillel directors, to student activists, to professors, what they thought the attitude, the prevailing attitude of campus was. And what I got at that time was what I would call soft postmodernism. That means that all stories are equal. All stories are equal. And that that was fundamentally how students saw the world. So if you train pro-Israel students to tell stories well, to talk about their personal connection to the state of Israel, they can become effective advocates because they could tell their story and they would appeal to their fellow students in that regard. In 2014, there was a sudden shift in attitude. It was a crazy to watch. We came back to school, and all of a sudden, all the students that we thought were on our side, and I don't mean Jewish students, I mean non-Jewish students, and we brought to Israel and tried to bring into the fold, had turned hostile on us, and we couldn't figure it out. And now I know why. It took me a while to understand. That summer was the summer during the unrest in Ferguson, Missouri, when Michael Brown was shot and killed by police. And that was not about all stories are equal anymore. It's set in a new narrative that only the story of Black Lives Matter, that America was a pervasively racist country was now was now the dominant story in America. And so people no longer saw stories being equal at that point. You also had some other changes in social media and the like that Jonathan Haidt writes about that were taking place beneath the surface. So when you combine those things, you saw a very sudden shift in discourse around 2015 that started to build up until the killing of George Floyd. And then that put us over the edge.
0: And of course, that trend has only continued in the last seven years. I mean, there's no question that it's just gotten, the snowball is going faster and faster down the
1: mountain. Exactly.
0: And I want to shift the conversation a little bit. I mean, you really think more about this ideology and its, its pernicious effects. And you think more about this ideology and its origins and more than pe- almost anybody that I know. And while you're American and you, know, you live in America and all that, you know Israel very, very, very well. So I want to ask you about petri dishes for a second. Um, You know, petri dishes can be hospitable to certain kinds of growth, and they can be inhospitable to certain kinds of growth. How hospitable a petri dish is Israel to woke ideology? I always hear people asking me, well, when is all of this stuff going to come to Israel? And I have my own view, but before I say what my view is, I want to hear what, what you think is the likelihood that this kind of radical progressivism, woke stuff can find a good base inside the Jewish
1: state. Hmm. So so far, we've seen woke ideology get traction in Anglo English-speaking countries like the United States, the UK, Canada. It might be worse in Canada than it is in the United States. It has its own manifestations, but it might be worse in Canada because there's Canada is a much more sort of left-leaning country than, with the, than the United States without any countervailing force. Right. In if w- anybody wants
0: to see that, by the way, just look at Concordia University, for example, in Canada, which is kind of a a very good bellwether of where they're heading.
1: Right, um, you you haven't seen it as much in places like Germany and France. You see it in New Zealand and Australia, by the way. Um, and um, the French are trying very hard to keep it out. It's kind of ironic because a lot of this ideology came from French philosophers, and like uh, that, uh, and and now we're uh, exporting it back to them. But um, so so. In general, it hasn't gained much ground in the non English speaking countries. My own personal view is that Israel is not a very susceptible petri dish to this ideology. Um, It is gaining ground in sectors of Tel Aviv, for example, Um, you certainly see it at Tel Aviv University you probably see it in, on sort of the gender issues that are taking place. I would imagine that the gender ideology, the idea that that gender is completely fluid and um, non-binary and so forth, that probably has gained a lot of ground in, in parts of Tel Aviv, um, you know, because there are the leadership of Tel Aviv often come from the LGBT community. So I, I imagine you'll see it there. I think sort of the, the, the um, oppressed oppressor binary probably will not, gain that much ground in Israel. And Israel's just not the kind of, you know, politically is not structured in a way that's likely to say, oh yes, there's a press or a binary. And anybody who has power is automatically complicit. Anybody who doesn't is automatically uh, depraved. I just don't think, um, I'm, I'm sorry, is, 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 um, is, is innocent. I, I just don't think that that's likely to gain ground in, in Israel as we know it today.
0: Yeah, I actually agree with you, and I think there's a bunch of reasons for that. First of all, I think what people don't recognize is that Israel is a very conservative society in a lot of ways, not only among religious Jews. I mean, first of all, Israeli Arabs, who make up 20 percent of the country, are very conservative. People scratch their heads and they say, why in the world would Israeli Arabs vote for Likud? I mean, that seems to make no sense. I mean, partly it is because, by the way, the left hasn't done all that much for Israeli Arabs either. So they don't think they're losing that much by not voting for the left. But it's largely because they actually share the social values of the the Israeli right. In other words, in terms of, um, well, certainly on gender and certainly on marriage and certainly, let's say, on having kids in or outside of wedlock and, you know, uh, uh, the taking religion seriously. And if one is not religious having a certain degree of reverence for the tradition of religion and for the value of religion. I mean, there's a whole host of ways in which, first of all, Israeli Arabs are a very uh, traditional society. Israeli ultra-Orthodox are obviously a very traditional society. Um, The Mizrachim, who make up more of Israeli society than do Ashkenazim, meaning Jews of darker color from the Levant, North Africa, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, uh, who are now more numerous in Israel, than white European origin Jews, are also instinctively much more right-wing. Um, now I don't mean right-wing, by the way, politically or on foreign policy or in the Israeli-Arab conflict. I mean, in terms of the roles of women, in terms of changes in religion, in terms of all kinds of things. So between the Haredim and the Mizrachim and the Arabs, and then just some people who happen to be conservatives, um, you have a much wider conservative base in Israel, which you're right is not is not reflective of Tel Aviv University's campus necessarily. But that's a small little piece. I also think, and here you and I might disagree a tiny little bit. I think what you know, Israel is very hospitable, and I actually think it's fabulous to the whole gay, lesbian community, and so on and so forth. That is fabulous. I don't think that that's morphing in Israel quite into gender fluidity in the same way that you don't go to Israel and see all gender bathrooms. At least if you have them, I've never seen. I've literally never seen an all gender bathroom in Israel. There's men, there's women and you go where you want to go. But I don't I I just think it's not going to take quite as much because, as you pointed out, some of that is derivative of an oppressor, oppressed ideology. And that would be a very ironic worldview for Israelis to buy into since the oppressor, oppressed ideology always makes Israel look guilty. So I think there's a whole array of reasons I tend to agree with you that it's not likely to come to Israel so quickly. Though, as you point out, some elements of it probably will. It goes without saying that Israeli teenagers who are bopping around Israeli cities with AirPods uh, in their ears are listening to a lot of the same music and a lot of the same stuff that kids are listening to in Argentina or in France or in America. And so some of it will come through. Israelis watch a lot of American TV. They watch American movies. So some of this will definitely see. But I think fundamentally you're right that this is... Um, much more an American phenomenon. I never thought about it the way you said it, that it's an English-speaking worldwide phenomenon, not a non-English-speaking yeah. thing worldwide. It,
1: it hasn't it hasn't totally infected the UK in the way it has the United States, which is, to me is a bit ironic because I always viewed sort of the student activists that I knew in the UK as much more sort of radically left than Americans, but it hasn't yet caught on in the same way and there are people in the UK who are trying to prevent it from catching on. By the way, also ironically, I I have seen gender neutral bathrooms in Tel Aviv and in, in in various LGBTQ Places we uh, visited them on a mission that I took a few years ago and met with some trans activists there. So I'm not saying it has the same pride of place as it does um, in in the United States. No pun intended. But um, but it does it does have some it does have some cachet. Um, another thing that you said really uh, resonated with me about Jews from the uh, from the Middle East. My mom is a. Uh, Baghdadi Jew. Um, so I've, I grew up in, with Iraqi Jews, Jews in my home. I spoke uh, Iraqi Jewish dialect of Arabic and so forth. Um, th- many of the Jews from um, the, the Middle East, from Iran, Persian Jews, really find this ideology distasteful. Um, Jews from the former Soviet Union, even more so. I mean, Natan Sharansky wrote the foreword to my book, and it's not at all surprising because. Jews from the former Soviet Union, when they hear this ideology, they hear totalitarianism. They hear the ideology that they were indoctrinated with in the Soviet Union. Um, And it sets off alarm bells immediately. It makes them think that the country they fled to is starting to sound like the country they fled from. And, um, and so it's not surprising that I'm finding many allies in the Jews from the former Soviet Union community in the United States. I'll bet you the same thing would be true in Israel if they, if they knew it. And, um, and I think that we're going to have to tell American Jews and the American Jewish establishment that you may think that you are being inclusive by having this ideology to choose a color and the like. But what's really happening is you're traumatizing Jews from countries that, um, that were oppressive to them. And those are the Jews who have really been oppressed. Uh, those are the Jews who have experienced tyranny. And and you're, and you're basically making Jewish life less hospitable by embracing this ideology.
0: That's absolutely true. So I'm going to ask you one more question, a reminder to our listeners that this is a, a conversation based on David's book just released, Woke Antisemitism: How a Progressive Ideology Harms Jews. And it, the book is scary. I mean, uh, it, it's very worrisome. You can't put the book down and not feel like this is, this is not so good. Um, yeah, one can agree, disagree, whatever, and you point that out yourself, but it's very hard to walk away um, without a certain sense of uh, uh, something feels ominous. So here, the last question that I wanted to ask you as we wrap up is, do you think woke is beginning to burn itself out? Do you think woke is not yet beginning to burn itself out, but will burn itself out, um, or is woke here to stay?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's here to stay, but I'm not sure it's going to go away anytime soon. The problem is that if politics is downstream from culture, as we say, institutions are far downstream from politics. So, for example, even if you change the political dynamics around this issue, because let's say Democrats who've might've bought into woke ideology lose at the polls as they probably would have if it had not been for the abortion issue in the United States. You saw that in the Virginia elections when a a Republican won in a democratic state in Virginia because of these issues over woke ideology, because of critical race theory in schools and the like, um, you would think that that would change the dynamic around wokeness, but it really hasn't had the impact that we had hoped. And the reason is that a lot of institutions in the wake of the George Floyd killing had, um, had uh, bought into this ideology and they signed on what I call the dotted line of deference. That is, they said, okay, we have got to get with the program here and, and, and stand up for racial justice. And sometimes they brought in a diversity, equity, and inclusion consultancy. Sometimes they hired somebody who was now in charge of their thinking around race and racism. And they deferred. And now it's very hard to get out of that. Even if they now regret it, even if they now worry that it's gone too far, they've sort of already signed on the dotted line. I think that's why this is not going anywhere. It's only now, two years after George Floyd, when all these sort of anti-racist commissions and anti-racism audits that organizations were performing, governments were performing, have come out with their reports. And those reports are now being institutionalized. Now, my son's school, and I want to give you this example to see, understand really how dangerous this ideology can be. My son's school, Montgomery County Public School System, which is home of one of the largest Jewish communities in the United States, right outside the D.C. area. And the
0: wealthiest county in America, I think, right? I think it is the
1: wealthiest county in America, one of the top three, um, um, has a new anti-racist audit, which is recommending that the social studies curriculum teach students how to recognize and resist systems of oppression. Now you can say, what's wrong with that? I mean, there are systems of oppression in the world. The problem is that this idea of systems of oppression is related to an ideology that holds that only people with power are the oppressors. So it looks at anybody who's powerful as being the oppressor and anyone who's supposedly powerless as being the oppressed. That means that Jews in the United States who on average do better than the rest of society can be held responsible and complicit in white supremacy against those who are not doing as well. That's part of what we mean by equity, by the way, and that way that this definition of equity has taken shape in American society. It means that we are installing software into the brains of young people, not in college, at liberal universities anymore, but in K through 12 schools, so that they see the world through this ideological binary. You don't have to teach that Israel and Zionism suck you can just teach them the oppressed oppressor binary and, and they will view Israel and Jews in a certain way. That to me is the fundamental problem we're facing in the future if we yeah. don't put this ideology in control.
0: yeah, And that's why the universities have become and one of the many reasons that the universities have become such a problematic place for Jews. Uh, on campus, whether or not Israel should respond to that by actually offering opportunities for American students to come to Israel is a hotly debated topic in the world in which I work because I'm in the college system. But that's a different conversation. All I'll end up by saying is that this is also a huge challenge to Israel in the following sense. A lot of Israelis know very little about America. I mean, they just know very little. You know, they know they have a sense, you know, 50 states, they know it's powerful, they think it's rich, they know a lot of movies and music come from there but they know nothing about the issues that you're talking about. Um, And therefore, even if they're not worried about it coming to Israel, which as you say, they probably should be at least a little bit, uh, they certainly should be worried about what this ideology means for their own security down the road. Because what's happening on American college campuses at the end of the day is going to influence what happens in Congress. And at the end of the day, what happens in Congress is going to influence very clearly what happens on Israel's borders and in Israel's skies. So uh, this is an issue that is not over over the, you know, over the ocean far away beyond the horizon. It may be over the ocean and behind the beyond the horizon, but it actually has enormous impact and a potential impact uh, for Israel and for Israelis in the future of the Jewish state, uh, which makes Israelis coming to think about the issues that you're speaking about. Uh, all the more important and all the more urgent. So that's a challenge to Israel as well from the from the work that you've been doing and you are doing. Once again, I want to wish you a congratulations on the appearance of the book. Wish you uh, continued success with the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values. Uh, look forward to thanking you in person and wish you all the best. You've been listening to Israel from the inside. Go to DanielGordis.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.